Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by Rima Majid. Rima is Associate Professor of Sociology at the Sociology, Anthropology and Media Studies Department at the American University of Beirut. Her work focuses on the field of social movements, sectarianism, conflict and violence. She's done some fascinating work on these topics, with a particular focus on Lebanon. Right now, she's a visiting fellow at the Middle East Initiative at Harvard University. Her work has been published in several journals, books and media platforms such as Social Forces, Mobilization, the Ratwich Handbook on the Politics of the Middle East, Middle East Law and Governance, and many other places. In particular, and of particular interest to us today, is a recent book titled The Lebanon Uprising of 2019, Voices from the Revolution, which is a book that Rima co-edited and has recently been published by I.B. Taurus. Rima, it's an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Simon, for having me. I'm really looking forward to this. I've, I've been reading your work for a long time and really, really enjoyed the, the stuff that, that you've been doing. It's incredibly provocative, intellectually rich, insightful, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. So before we get started with the, with the more substantive intellectual stuff, I must ask, as I always do, what was it that, that got you interested in the academy and, and interested in politics more broadly, please? Yeah, well, thank you for the introduction. That, that's very generous. Um, I, I started becoming interested in politics and society more broadly when I was uh, really young, and that was during the Second Intifada. Uh, uh, this was my, the initial moment of my politicization, and since then I've been interested in, uh, in, in understanding struggles and understanding inequalities, uh, exploitation, and um, and conflict. So this is how it started. Uh, I was still a teenager, but then um, my interest in the in academia more more closely. I mean, I I started my undergrad uh, studies in economics, and I found that uh, because I you know I had started from a, a background thinking that this is how I I'll understand the world. And then I found studying economics uh, boring and very mathematical, so I, I shifted to sociology and I ended up being a political sociologist. Um, and wh- uh, while I was doing my graduate studies, um, things were shifting very quickly in Lebanon uh, after 2005 and uh, you know what, what the, the shift that started to happen after the Hadidi assassination. So I became interested in sectarianism or sectarianization and the shift or, or how it, how these the fault lines can change that quickly, and uh, of course, then I started to develop this concept of the links between identity politics and uh, and neoliberalism, more specifically in Lebanon. Um, more recently, I started to branch out a bit to look at Iraq, another fascinating uh, uh, country to study and compare with Lebanon. Um, so this is how I started, and, and this is where I am today. I'm, I'm still very interested in all these questions. I'm not sure I have clear answers, um, but but I'm sure I I know a bit more than when, where I started uh, some 20 years ago. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I, I want to talk to you about your, your piece uh, in TNI, comparing Lebanon and Iraq in a little bit, if I may. But mm. you mentioned the, the Intifada. I mean, what was it about that that, that captured your... Um, your political curiosity or your political imagination? Hmm. 
Um, it was the siege of uh, Abu Ammar, and I was—I uh, mean, to be honest, I, I was watching. Uh, I was glued to the TV. I spent two days. I was sleeping in the living room, and my father, who was an activist uh, from a leftist background, told me, um, "You know, aren't you ashamed that this is happening, and you are sitting here at home? You should be in the street." <laughs> wow. So this is how it started. So he he uh, he pushed me actually. Uh so I called my friends and and we joined the protest and since then we've been joining uh, a lot of protests. Uh but that was I mean I felt that at that moment it was a, a very strong feeling of injustice and like the 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 horrible images coming from Palestine. Um and a, a strong a mobilization around Palestine and Lebanon at that time that interestingly started to fade away after 2005, at least in terms of magnitude and intensity, uh, which has also left me thinking about these shifts. I mean, I'm interested in change and I'm interested in how, you know, that's, that's one cause that has not been solved and that actually is becoming, uh, you know, the, the, uh, even worse. But uh, people are mobilizing less and less around this in, in Lebanon, not globally. Mm, sure. So sure. yeah, so uh, yeah, this is this is what happened. So then, your your first protest would be uh, around the second intifada, would it? Yes. Fantastic. Okay. So then, where does economics fit into your sort of your broader intellectual and political outlook? I, I mean, it's central, but uh, I, I mean, I think of it in terms of political economy rather than sure, economic. Okay. Uh, and I think it's central in understanding uh, society, social behavior, social trends, uh, but also in understanding regimes and uh, politics more broadly. Um, so I work at this intersection between sociology and, and politics. And I think what brings these two fields together is political economy in many cases. Um, so I, I find that, uh, you know, there's this kind of disappearance of an analysis of class dynamics in the region because of this, uh, um, you know, focus, uh, excessive focus, I, I may say, on identity. Um, and, you know, uh, so I, I started with, I, I must say, my work started as a reaction to the literature. And initially I was arguing that, you know, it's not sectarian. And I think what I meant is not that there's no sectarianism, but that sectarianism is not the only way we understand what is happening. I mean, I've moved on a bit from there. And now I think, you know, we're not, we shouldn't be blind to sectarianism, but I'm also not blinded by it. And, and I think, uh, you know, sectarianism is still this very big meta uh, concept that um, that we use without understanding exactly what we mean, or different people mean different things with it. Yeah. Um, so, so, I mean, whether it's looking at sectarianism or looking at social movements and uh, uprisings and struggles from below, I think we cannot overlook uh, the economic question. Uh, but that also should not boil down to an economic determinism where we don't see the other uh, uh, you know, divisions and differences in society. I guess that's where, where political economy is, is rather useful and that it's able to, to contextualize uh, some of these interactions and maybe points to the, the, the intersectionality of 
of a whole host of different issues. Totally, yeah. So how would you you set out your your approach to political economy then? For someone who's who's not well versed in in the various debates around political economy, and particularly mm. the political economy of, of Lebanon, how would you mm. how would you sort of offer an introduction to, to your ideas or to the political economy of, of Lebanon? Mm. Uh, well, I mean, I, I also was not trained in political economy, but I, uh, the, I, I think understanding uh, dynamics in Lebanon, but also more broadly, and, and actually the reason I'm interested in political economy is, uh, is exactly to move beyond the exceptionalism in dealing with Lebanon and to plug it back in a broader global discussion on, uh, you know, the economic order that governs the world uh, today, namely cap- capitalism and its, and its neoliberal variation, and identity politics. Because I mean, my claim is that there is there's nothing exceptional in what is happening in Lebanon. It is happening in different forms and, and shapes in other places around the world. Maybe not to the same, uh, uh, not the same intensity, and definitely, I mean, with with its own particularities in Lebanon. But this intersection between uh, the economy and between identity politics uh, globally is, uh, I mean, I think we would gain a lot in comparing. And this is why I borrow from concepts like racial capitalism uh, and, and thinking about what I call sectarian neoliberalism in Lebanon and this intersection between uh, these two spheres. So my claim is that um, Lebanon has been neoliberal from the onset. And it's quite interesting because at the time when Lebanon was adopting what today we would call neoliberal policies, uh, and that, that, you know, starting in the 30s and, and then after the independence, uh, the world was going in a different direction. That was after the, if we think post-World War II, the world was moving towards uh, more Keynesian uh, uh, approaches, um, you know, a bigger welfare state. Uh, countries around us in the region, I mean, Lebanon was definitely, uh, uh, you know, at a stark contradiction with its environment because post-colonial uh, struggles in the region um, during that time have led to a new regimes that were uh, so-called socialist in many cases, but also uh, uh, authoritarian with a big, uh, a big state that interferes in all, all aspects of life, including uh, the economy. Lebanon was, you know, uh, uh, the opposite in that from the beginning, it was a deregulation of labor. It was, uh, you know, financialization of, uh, of the economy. Uh, the bankers, uh, uh, you know, the, the, a, a big role for banking, the banking sector, uh, um, which make, makes me think today that, you know, it's scary, but if one thinks that, okay, so, and contrary to the whole literature on uh, neoliberalism that tells us that neoliberalism started with the Chicago boys and, you know, the Chile experiment and then Thatcher and Reagan and, uh, uh, you know, in that period, the Washington consensus, that this is this all happened some 30 years after uh, neoliberalism was already happening in Lebanon. And the, the scary thought is that, well, this is an example of a country where you have a longer history of neoliberalism. And look where we are today, in the worst economic crisis in 
since the 19th century, and then, and you know, in, in the words of the World Bank, um, and a political deadlock that, or a political system that seems to be, uh, you know, unable to function every few decades. So it's the sort of a, you know, it's a bit of an extrapolation, but it's also, I think, interesting material to think with, uh, if, if because it it puts in question the literature on neoliberalism that is very that is still very western centered and i think you know lebanon is a is a case in point to think about neoliberalism beyond the west uh and this is not to say that the west had nothing to do with it of course uh of course the west had a lot to do with it um in terms of of uh colonialism i mean um but also in bringing back issues of how do we think about class dynamics? How do we think about, uh, you know, uh, capital? And what does it mean to understand this meta concept uh, of sectarianism and thinking about Lebanon or Iraq for that matter? Sure. Yeah, that's that's really helpful. Thank you. I, I'm i going to apologize now, Rima. Mm-hmm. What is your understanding of neoliberalism? I'm so sorry. I just felt compelled <laughs> to ask. Because we're talking about this, right? We're talking about mm-hmm. all these, these socioeconomic crises in the context of what people point yeah. to as, as neoliberalism. But No, I think this is a fantastic question. And I, I, I mean, I have a very short answer and, and then there's a much longer answer. <laughs> but the, the short answer is, I mean, my understanding is that ne- neoliberalism is not about rolling back the state at full point. It's about a state that interferes, actually, but to protect a certain social class, and it's, it's the class of the oligarch. Uh, so it's a state that is rolled back when it comes to welfare, so minimal intervention in terms of welfare, uh, and minimum redistribution of wealth, deregulation of labor, uh, um, and uh, uh, of, of market um, uh, uh, lifting or, or an easier uh, movement of, of capital and namely uh, a bigger financial capitalist uh, uh, system. Um, but it's not, it, it is not a system in which the state does not interfere. And I think this is the, the key point is that the state actually does interfere uh, uh, but it interferes to protect the uh, the, the class that uh, uh, you know that today we would call the oligarchs. Mm-hmm. So then, when we apply that to the non-Western world, what mm-hmm. does what does neoliberalism look like, and how does it differ when you take it out away from the Washington Consensus? How do we understand that that point of difference? The point, I mean, the difference I'm pointing at is the the genealogy of the term and uh, our understanding of it. I'm just saying that the history, I'm not saying it it is a a different phenomena per se. What I'm saying is that the history of it is linked to to the West or to an understanding of these, uh, you know, interventions in the West. Uh, But I'm saying, well, here's an example in Lebanon where these things have started way before. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, so in thinking about how we write the history of neoliberalism or how we think about, uh, uh, you know, the genealogy of the system, 
I think we should look at what was happening around the world beyond what was just happening in the West. So, sure, yeah. That, it's interesting to hear you say that because when I'm reading your work, um, I'm, I'm thinking in particular of the piece you wrote for uh, for the Middle East Institute titled The Political Brackets or Social Economy of Sectarianism in Lebanon. It strikes me that you've got a very clear example of, of neoliberalism operating, as you say, right sort of at the heart of the political, um, the political project from very early on. Um, which is, is quite apparent, perhaps more apparent in, in the Lebanese case, reinforcing the Zuama, reinforcing the, the power of the elites, um, mm-hmm. that perhaps is, is a bit more evident, a bit more obvious than in, in other cases. Um, yeah, and, and this is why I'm saying the his, the history of it is important because I think Lebanon is probably the country that had an, this type of system for the longest time compared to the rest of the world. I mean, at least I haven't. I'm still searching, but I haven't found another case yet that is uh, that had started that early on. Um, and but if you think about Iraq after 2003, you know it. It looks very much like, uh, uh, I mean, of course, it, it's not as entrenched as it is in Lebanon because of because of this history. But, uh, you know, we see very similar patterns in terms of, uh, uh, you know, the sh- shifting to a very neoliberal uh, uh, economy. And that comes hand in hand with sectarianization. And, and you know, the argument is that neoliberalism requires identity politics it's 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 you know it lives on um uh, social uh, differences and divisions globally not just i mean it could take the form of uh, of ethnic sectarian communal racial uh, any other divide uh, and in the case of the middle east it's been mainly sectarianization and and uh, but also, in, in some cases, uh, it's also about uh, ethnicity. Um, can, we, can we flesh that out a little bit, Rima, please? Because I think that's so important and so valuable, and obviously something that you you touch on in in depth across your your writings. But for people who've not read your work as yet, and as an aside, okay. I strongly recommend that you should. Just please elaborate a little bit more on on how that those two concepts interact, the neoliberalism and uh, the sectarianization, and why neoliberalism requires or thrives on sectarianizing mm-hmm. moves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, the, the, the uh, easy answer, or, or I mean, a simple answer is that uh, neoliberalism, I mean, capitalism generally, not just neoliberalism, but and this is what we see a lot in, liter- in the literature on racial capitalism, how it exploits these, uh, how it exploited the racial divide and how it actually racialized uh, certain uh, uh, communities uh, in order to extract, uh, in order to uh, exploit and accumulate uh, capital. Now, with neoliberalism, it's, it's, a, it's a pushed version of that that mainly survives on uh, on uh, rolling back the welfare role of the state. Uh, and therefore, and this is where we, we see the non-state welfare flourishing, mainly along the lines of, uh, of identity uh, groups. 
Uh, and this is why, you know, we see that in most countries where I mean, what, what the literature calls the deeply divided societies, a, a term and a paradigm that I, I disagree with uh, wholeheartedly. Um, but in, in these cases where we see that there is sectarian, like, uh, uh, you know, salient sectarianization, um, we usually it comes hand in hand with uh, 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 no state welfare and uh, welfare being redistributed through these other channels of uh, sectarian or, or ethnic uh, leaders that have their own uh, clientelistic networks. So, uh, so that is, that is and, 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 and doing uh, this, it makes bigger room for accumulation of profit and capital in the market because there's less redistribution. Mm-hmm. And that's a core thing for neoliberalism. So uh, the state does not, for example, impose big uh, uh, or you know, progressive taxation or, or very limited. Uh, so there's no real redistribution. Um, so again, and I'm still here describing all of that within the paradigms of the capitalist system. I'm, yeah, I'm not, sure. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, uh, so in that sense, the, the the redistributive role of the state is uh, is halted, and what comes to fill in is the non-state uh, uh, patronage, mm-hmm. and this is this you know, and this is core to to sectarianization or to. Uh, making these identity cleavages more salient for in a in a political divide, and this is how we start to conflate a sectarian divide with a political divide in many cases. Um, but we see, uh, uh, you know, we see this around the world in different shapes, and somehow we also see this with the rise of uh, the far right, for example, in in Europe uh, at this time. And, you know, uh, 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 the idea of, um, you know, a display on identity, on, you know, hating uh, refugees, uh, the nationalist idea that in many cases is is thought of as being anti-sectarian in our context. But I I would argue the opposite. Uh, Nationalism is a form of sectarianism. And in in those cases, we see that, I mean, all of this means that the state will be doing less welfare and that this you know whatever uh, uh whatever we think of uh, or whatever welfare was there will uh, will be relegated uh will either be uh, uh uh you know either there are some communities that will be ex- excluded or it will take the form of charity uh and uh redistribution through these other channels um that are not the state that redistribution itself. Oh, sorry. Please go on. Yeah. No, and, and I mean, in that sense, I'm saying the state is is therefore playing the role of defending the accumulation of capital in the hands of a certain class, be it a national national class or you know the national bourgeoisie or or mm-hmm. uh, uh, call it the way you want, rather than defending, rather than the state playing the role of protecting society at large, and namely the more uh, vulnerable groups in society. So it's a flipped way of, of thinking about uh, the role of the state in the economy and its implication on, on society. Yeah, sure. I think I, that's I, a good way of putting it. Mm. But yeah, then, I don't know if this makes sense. It I know does, I'm, yeah. I'm it, it really does. Okay. But the, the, 
the distributory capabilities of actors, be it the state or otherwise, generates a form of Borgesian capital, right? In the sense that if if an actor is is distributing wealth or goods, services, whatever it may be, they accumulate capital. They accumulate forms of of legitimacy that will improve their own standing, their own influence. So the state's refusal, reluctance, inability to do it only mm-hmm. serves to to I guess re-energize or, or or give these other actors that have positions of influence already. The ability to to double down on their their positions of power. Sure, I mean, and the thing is that you know it's a vicious circle because another aspect or another I think important uh, uh, facet of neoliberalism is this is the very close tie between the political elites and the economic elites, and in some cases they're just the same people, right? Yeah. And again, this is global. This is not just in Lebanon. We see this. I mean, and this is what today we call corruption. Uh, uh, you know, when, when people are talking about corruption, of course, corrupt, there is corruption and corruption can take different shapes. But I think a core issue in it is, is that the separation between uh, the political elite and the economic elite is very blurred. And therefore, the, you know, it's, these, this class is also the, the political power, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and therefore it's, it's a vicious circle of, yes, they're not going to, uh, they're not going to, to install state welfare because they will be losing their own whatever social capital you, we're talking about through these networks of uh, clientelism. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, so, so then you know, it's a bit the question of the egg or, or the chicken. Where do you start? I mean, how are they going to really reform or change a regime uh, or a system that benefits them so much? And they are in the positions of power at the same time. So, uh, so it's unlikely that any type of change in that direction would come from this class that, uh, that is also, uh, you know, governing uh, sure. Can we just go to Iraq briefly before going to a discussion about change? Because I want to talk about your your recent book with with Jeffrey. Mm-hmm. But before we get to that, can we just talk a little bit about the the piece you wrote for TNI about uh, the the protests in Lebanon and Iraq and comparing these these um, processes, I guess, and the, the, the conditions that led to them. So mm-hmm. can you just tell us a little bit about the, the key takeaways from that piece, please? I think it's fabulous. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, this piece is, uh, I mean, I've reworked it a bit for the book uh, I co-edited with Jeffrey, and I'm actually writing now a, a, a full book on, uh, you know, thinking about uh, about this um so I think what is important in, in, in that piece or what I'm, the main argument I'm trying to make is that uh, um, we need to think about these uprisings, uh, uh, I, what I call uprisings against or uprisings that are trying to bargain with sectarian neoliberalism from the lens of contradiction. And I think we, I mean, to my mind, we can only understand what has happened in 2019 and what continues to happen through 
you know, focusing contradiction. Uh, it's not, it's, I mean, revolutions are messy and we need to think of them as such. Uh, so what I'm the, the the main argument is that well first I would like to call them I mean I, I try to uh, make an argument in this literature about are these revolutions are these not revolutions and uh, my argument is that our understanding of revolution is very outdated mm-hmm. uh, and I think we need we need to update our theoretical tool, toolbox um, so we need to be thinking more about what a revolution means in the 21st century under neoliberalism without necessarily uh, uh, just relying on, a def- on definitions of, of revolution that come from the 19th century and early 20th century revolution uh, because, because society has changed and because everyday life has changed and because the economic system has changed. And uh, therefore, we cannot think of revolutions the same way. Uh, so that's one thing I, I say, you know, it's, it's really irrelevant whether you call them revolution or uprising uh, if there's no reason why we're doing this. And actually, in the title of our book, we, we use both uprising and revolution uh, to convey that message that sure. the way we, you know, the, the definition only matters if it has a consequence. And so what we're saying here is that we truly believe that there was a revolutionary situation, at least. And then, and we think of revolutions not just as events, but also as processes and very long-term processes. Uh, so, um, so um, uh, in that sense, we do want to call them revolutions. And we also think it's, uh, you know, that's a, I don't like the approach from academics who try to correct uh, the popular uh, uh, gut feeling. If people were saying it's an uprising, uh, if people in the street were saying it's a, it's a revolution, and they did say that across the region, I don't see why we would correct them unless there really is uh, an important difference we're doing. And the, usually it's because the definition is uh, consequentialist. It's, it's only a revolution if it succeeds. Uh, but well, I mean, revolutions uh, take very long decades. The most successful revolution that we are taught in school is the French Revolution, and that took some eight decades. Uh, so, you know, we yeah. still call it a revolution. So I, I don't see why we need to judge these revolutions in the first decade. But uh, so that that's how that's my first argument. Uh, the, and then I think uh, what I, what I try to do in that piece is I think about how things unfolded from, uh, you know, how the pol- the, neo- the sectarian neoliberal political imaginary of, of the masses very much shaped uh, uh, the way we, we, uh, uh, we all behaved uh, during or, or, you know, the way the uprising unfolded um, and ended up in some way becoming the live vest of the regime uh, uh, for a while, of course. I'm not saying that this will last forever. But, uh, but, and we see this in many, you know, through many lenses. And the few ones that I mentioned in this, in this piece is, uh, are, for example, uh, the inability to think about uh, sectarianism in a way that is uh, beyond identity politics in one way or the other. So when, when, People want to say that we're not sectarian. They usually say it's usually 
the Lebanese flag and a nationalist discourse. Uh, but I argue here that nationalism, I mean, Lebanese nationalism historically has been very sectarianized. Uh, and nationalism is another form of identity politics that does exclude uh, non-nationals, for example, and which is interesting in a country like Lebanon, where you have the highest rates of refugees per capita in the world. And yet, these are, I mean, they're completely sidelined in the discussion, in the political discussion of the uh, uh, revolution. Um, so so that's one one. Uh, aspects of this contradiction. Another is, uh, you know, I think that just a discourse analysis of um, the slogans and the way many of the campaigns that have been very, uh, I think, uh, very important in the history of uh, modern contemporary history of Lebanon are very much shaped around two things that, that I find fascinating. Uh, the individual um, so a very individualized approach, but also in many cases, the concept of rights and legal rights uh, uh, for that matter. So if we think about, say, Lihaqi, which was a group that, that was very active during, before and after the uprising, uh, Lihaqi means for my rights. Mm -hmm. So it says my mm -hmm. rights, it doesn't say our rights, which is interesting. Yeah. But also the concept mm -hmm. of rights is is weird in a country where no one believes in in the independence of the judiciary system. Uh, so it's like a fantasy somehow, a fantasized uh, uh, you know nation state where uh, where uh, rights and obligations happen. I mean the same thing in in Iraq. The uh, one of the first groups that mobilized in the Tishrin uprising um, mobilized under the banner of Nazel Ahut Haqqi. So I'm, I'm going to take my right. Again, it's, a, it's an individual approach to right. It's not about a social contract or a collective. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, uh, it's focused on the legal aspects of things. Uh, but then you can also think of other movements, such as Beirut Medinati, for mm -hmm. example. That's yeah. Beirut my yeah. city rather than Beirut our city. So, and here I'm saying there's, you know, in this revolutionary political imagination, uh, it is, you know, it's revolutionary in many aspects, but it's also still very much tainted by this sectarian neoliberal understanding of, uh, you know, of politics and of the world and of change itself. And therefore, the, you know, the movements to change were still very much shaped around. And I think this is where, you know, uh, uh, things were blocked. And this is where people realized that you know, there's a difficulty in um, in moving forward with a regime that is not single-headed like authoritarian regime that has multiple heads, and that uh, you know uh, uh, that that is difficult to and that is sectarian and neoliberal at its core. So people were mobilizing against these two pillars, but they you know the only way we could we could. Uh, 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 you know, mobilize against this regime was by, in many cases, reproducing its own paradigm. Uh, so I can go on and on with with other examples about, you know, how, like, the, for example, the demand for technocracy, or a technocratic government, that became the, literally the life vest of the regime, uh, because there was a real revolutionary situation and a deadlock, 
after the uh, uh, resignation of Hariri. And it was the demand that came from the streets uh, of a technocratic government that actually saved them in saying, okay. And it was, I mean, at that point, people in the streets were asking the the regime to reform itself uh, uh, rather than trying to impose a revolutionary change, right? People were mm-hmm. saying, this is what we want. You have to do it. Um, and, so the, and so, you know, they said, okay, great. You want a, a technocratic government? We'll do it for you. And uh, uh, and they did. So th- it's open. It's th- this dynamic opens space for co-optation of uh, revolutionary demands from the regime, uh, uh, because they are because the demands are tainted by this political imagination uh, that is sectarian and ne- neoliberal, and the regime has the ability of absorbing these demands and turning them into something that uh, works for uh, for a reproduction of uh, of itself. Uh, so, uh, you know, and other things like, for example, thinking about slogans against corruption. You know, of course there's corruption in Lebanon, but is corruption the reason why the financial crisis happened? I would say hardly so. Uh, if, we, if you think about about, for example, unemployment, which I think was a, a very important aspect of, uh, of this uprising and other uprisings in the region. Uh, unemployment is not the outcome of corruption. It's the outcome of an economic system mm-hmm. that is not productive and that does not create uh, job opportunities. Right? As I've argued in, in another piece uh, that almost every Lebanese is born to be exported. Uh, so it's it's an economic model that relies on exporting its youth in order for them to send remittances, and it's a model that lives off remittances. Uh, you know, it's what we call the Dutch disease. So in that sense, uh, while people are understanding these things in terms of corruption, we are, we still are not at a at a phase where you know we can call this. Uh, uh, a structural issue rather than just an issue of corruption. So replacing the bad guys with newer faces is not going to solve this. Uh, it's, it's a deeper, more systemic and structural uh, uh, crisis that we're dealing with. Yeah. We had an interesting yeah. discussion about this in the aftermath of the, of, of the recent elections. Um, on this mm-hmm. podcast, then that that theme about whether you can essentially bring about change from within the system or whether you have to completely reimagine the whole system was a was a dominant one in that discussion, and I think mm-hmm. that there's a, a plurality of different views on that. But yeah, well, I'm I, I'm closer to the uh, latter. I think it's very difficult, or I, I think it's impossible for this. I, I, and again, I mean, in other places. It's not a general argument about, you know, being against elections. But I think the Lebanese system has reached a point where uh, reform from within is impossible. And, uh, and you know, when I was saying at the beginning, uh, like pondering on, on this the history of sectarian neoliberalism in Lebanon is scary because, yeah, I mean, it has reached a point where the state institutions have become completely, I would say, void of power. And there's a para-state uh, system, a parallel system, uh, where power really lies, that is completely out. I mean, it's not, 
it's outside the state institutions uh, and channels, but it's linked to them, right? And I'll mm-hmm. give you examples, for example. Mm-hmm. The, whenever there's a, there's a political crisis in the country, if you remember, the, the politicians do not go to the parliament to discuss. They created what they call Tawlit al-Hiwar, the discussion table, uh, so, uh, w- which was a, a parallel way of the, in, a way for the political leaders. And these are not the elected uh, uh, members of the parliament that participated. It's the leaders that, uh, that have a bigger say. So someone like uh, Hassan Nasrallah, who has never occupied any official seats in, in the system, has political power and, you know, can have a say in these negotiation or discussion uh, tables. And once the, a deal is reached outside the, uh, uh, the state uh, channel, this is when they go to the parliament or to the government and have a vote. But usually most of these votes are, you know, there's an agreement that has already been reached uh, uh, outside of this. And that's maybe, uh, uh, you know, an aspect of consociationalism that uh, we, we need to, to rethink. Uh, uh, but, but I think it's also very much, uh, you know, linked with uh, how, how far the system has gone in, in creating these parallel uh, systems, whether it's in clientelism, I mean, think about schooling, about, you know, the uh, public schooling, but then all of these parties and religious groups have their own schooling system uh, that's run in parallel uh, to uh, to state uh, institutions. And, and you have political institutions like Majlis al and wal amar or the Council of the South, the Council of uh, uh, Development and, and Reconstruction. All of these uh, entities that are created in parallel um, to, you know, to create a system that does not necessarily work or, or that displaces power from, from, you know, what you would think in, in a democratic setting is state institutions to these parastate institutions. And I think this dislocation of power makes it impossible then to change through elections yeah. or, or from yeah. within the system. Sure. Rima, there's so much that we could pick up on and just so much more that we could discuss in detail about all of these things and about your your wonderful uh, forthcoming edited collection. But I think we've already gone over the record for the longest podcast discussion of all time in the history of Sepad Pods. So with that in mind, I think we might have to try and find another time to uh, to get you on to talk about this this wonderful new book which teases out some of the the themes that we've we've picked up on in this in this conversation mm-hmm. so far. So um, I'm really sorry to have to do this to you Rima, but it's been an absolute Not pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Simon. This was really a pleasure and I'm happy to discuss more whenever we, uh, we are in any uh, format. Uh, but thank you so much for this. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Rima. A huge thank you to Rima for her time just now. It's been an absolute pleasure so much to reflect on. Do check out her work and certainly check out her new edited collection with Jeffrey Karam. It's on uprisings and revolution and it's sure to be the go-to resource for anyone wanting to know more about what's happened in Lebanon over the past three years. You can find Rima on Twitter 
at Rima underscore Majed. That's at Rima underscore Majed. As always, thank you for listening. Do take care of yourselves. Until next time.